W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. I've got two Terrific guests in studio today, two amazing women I'm proud to call friends who have traveled from afar to get here, coming over all the way from east of the river. Janae Isler is here. Good morning, Janae. And coming all the way from another river, the Nile River, is Naz Khan. Welcome, Naz. Thank you, Jack. Good morning. I couldn't be happier to start my day in the company of these two wonderful souls. So without further ado, it is time to get into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, I am so happy to be here with my friends here, Janae and Naz. Um, I want to start with, with Janae. I asked for a bio. She actually provided me with a biography. Um, I want to dispense with all the the big name VP um, <laughs> role and the board memberships and so on and so forth. And just start right back at the beginning um, and just hear a little bit about where you grew up. You grew up in this area. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, where you where you grew up and what family life was like for you. I uh, grew up in PG County in Fort Washington, <clears throat> um, which... Uh, used to be Oxen Hill when I was five. Actually, the the name of the city changed. They redrew the city lines. So I'm definitely from this area. Uh, when I was growing up, I um, had to be very clear to say I was from Maryland and not from D.C. because people right. from Maryland are from Maryland and people <laughs> from D.C. are from D.C. Um, but then I moved away and came back in 2010. And people were like, oh, PG County, yeah, you're from here. You're from D.C. And I was like, wait, when did it change? What happened? Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up here, uh, grew up Catholic. I went to St. Ignatius Parish oh, okay. in um, in Fort Washington, Maryland. And I went to Baptist school actually from kindergarten to sixth grade mm-hmm. and Catholic school from seventh to 12th grade. So I uh, went to St. Ignatius school, uh, seventh and eighth grade, went to Georgetown visitation, uh, Catholic high school in Georgetown for ninth <clears throat> through 12th grade. Um, and then I moved away for college, went to college in St. Louis and I lived away for 12 years and came back to DC in 2010. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the religious life in your, in your household. Um, was your, your family also, uh, Catholic? That was a strong part of your, your upbringing. Yeah. My mom, um, is from New Orleans, uh, and her side of the family is Catholic going back many, many generations. My dad was not Catholic. My dad was Protestant and he actually didn't go to church with us very often, but Mm -hmm. my mom, uh, made sure we went to church every single week. So Mm -hmm. she and I, would go to church every week. Um, and when I was a teenager, maybe 12 or 13, I got involved in the youth group. So my church didn't have a strong youth group, but there was a church up the road called St. Columba that had a really strong youth group. And we would do community service together. We had social events together. Um, we would have lock-ins, which sounds really like weird, <laughs> but it sounds weird. Exactly. But it was fun. You know, mm-hmm. it's a bunch of teenagers in a gym all night, like listening to music and eating popcorn and like 
hot dogs and playing games. Right, right. And this was St. Ignatius. You said that was out in PG? Mm-hmm. St. Ignatius is in PG County, mm-hmm. and the youth group was with St. Columba, which is also in PG County. Okay, great. Yeah. And so then when you came back to D.C., now you're you're involved with St. Augustine Catholic Parish uh, mm-hmm. down in D.C., down near uh, Malcolm X Park. Yep. Um, tell us about uh, St. Augustine. How did you get involved with that community when you moved back to the area? When I moved away for college, I actually stopped going to church. So I didn't go to church uh, very often, pretty much my entire college career. And I started going back to church um, when I was about 25. Mm. Uh, I was living uh, in North Carolina at the time, and my neighbor ran Catholic campus ministry at a local college. And he saw rosary beads in my car. And he said, oh, are you Catholic? And I said, kind of. And he said, well, you should come to Mass. And I was like, I'm 25. I don't want to go to Mass with college Mm -hmm. students. I'm an adult. Um, But I went. And it was awesome. And that's a longer story. But um, that's how I started going back to church. So I I was going to church off and on in North Carolina. I didn't necessarily have a church that I loved. Um, But when I came back in 2010, I asked around for uh, a good church. And someone recommended St. Augustine. And I went there once and loved it and mm-hmm. started going there. And I've been there ever since. And they put me to work. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to venture to guess that you also volunteered as, yes. I, as, I, uh, as I know you and, and know that you can't sit still for very long. And Hence it. my long bio. There right? you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about St. Augustine. Um, I... You know, it's one of those places that I've I, I heard the name about for for a number of years, um, but I I realized that I had never actually been there, um, in, until I, it might have actually been you that 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 brought me there for for the first time. Um, but it's you know it's a it's a community that is present in in the in the neighborhood certainly and certainly has a historic place in terms of DC and the and the various DC faith community. So tell us a little bit about the the important role that St. Augustine has in in the DC community. Um, I would love to. So St. Augustine is a very old church. Uh, we were founded in 1858 by uh, free black people. Um, if you know your DC history, DC uh, emancipated enslaved black people before the rest of the country. Um, and so uh, free black people decided to start this parish Catholics. But um, even though slavery was over, uh, black children couldn't be educated. So before they actually built the church, they built a school. Mm-hmm. And the school was on uh, 15th Street, farther down from where we are now, uh, closer to S. Um, so they raised money. Uh, they had a fundraiser um, on the White House lawn in the Lincoln administration, a strawberry festival, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, to raise money to build a school. So they built the school before they built the church building. And while they were building the school, they worshipped in the basement of St. Matthew's Cathedral, which is on... On, um, Rhode Island. Oh, Rhode Island. Right, yeah, right, Rhode right. Island, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's 1858, a uh, huge legacy. So education is very important to the parish. And um, we still have St. Augustine Catholic School, which goes from uh, pre-K to eighth grade. Uh, and the students are fabulous. And I volunteer there sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the parish also is called the Mother Church of Black Catholics because it helped other uh, parishes that were predominantly black get started and, and build their infrastructure and build their congregations. Um, and the other sort of big characteristic of our church, I think, is the liturgy. So, you know, Roman Catholics, we love our we love our rituals. We love our rites. We love our sacraments. Um, and St. Augusta takes that very seriously. So we put a lot into our music ministry. We have amazing choirs. Our chorale um, 
is uh, also hundreds of years old. I think it's like 120, 130 years wow. old. Um, and that's more classical, traditional music. We also have a gospel choir and some other choirs. Um, and then uh, just the, the, the beauty and the intention around how we worship, uh, that's very important to our community and to our pastor. So tell me, is, is having a predominantly black uh, Catholic community here in the U.S. or or maybe in in sort of the this part of the U.S. is that is that a rarity or is that is that something that um, that is actually quite commonplace? Yeah. So full disclosure, because you can't see me, I'm black. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, black Catholics make up um, about three percent of the Catholic Church, if I have my stats mm-hmm. right. So it's a really small percentage of the Catholic Church um, in the United States. Uh, but in major cities where there are are black people or where there were historically black people, there are black Catholics. I've lived in St. Louis. Um, my mother's from New Orleans. Um, Catholic cities have black Catholics, sure, Boston, sure. et cetera. So uh, there are quite a few black churches. Um, there's uh, St. Francis Xavier. There, um, there are quite a few black churches in this area. Uh, but still people are like, oh, you're black and you're Catholic. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, you know, my family's been Catholic for generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the community itself has a very active presence, I think, particularly in terms of social justice work and so forth. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about, about some of the, the ways of engagement that St. Augustine's as a community is really looking to impact the local area. Yeah, uh, that's also a key part of our history. So historically, um, you know, during the March on Washington, St. Augustine was uh, a host for a lot of people coming to D.C. Um, St. Augustine was very active in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, St. Augustine has been active within the Catholic Church to advocate uh, for the needs of black people to the Catholic Church, helping to found um, the National Black Catholic Congress. So uh, we have a long history of that. Uh, This is, as we know, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King, um, and that led to riots around the country. So um, the beginning of the riots in D.C., Uh, started a block from where our church is located now. And the church played a really key role, particularly the nuns and the clergy, the priests there, played a really key role in um, helping people um, move around to um, engage in in the curfew, to bring food and other resources into the community. Uh, And the church was never harmed during those riots because it was such a a strong presence um, in the community. And so we still have a strong social justice ministry. We're involved with the Washington Interfaith Network, advocating for affordable housing um, and uh, better jobs with the city. Uh, We are partnering really closely with some affordable housing residences on our block, on our neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that with a lot of the development and gentrification that's happening, people can stay in in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so we've, over the last three or four years, we've built a really strong relationship uh, with folks at Portner Place and some other residences that we're really proud of. Mm -hmm. And we also have a lot of um, homeless outreach uh, that we've been doing for many, many years. And you currently have a role as as, um, part of the, the Parish council, is that is that right? Yeah, the parish pastoral council. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a finance so, council and a pastoral council. So tell us about that role and what, what are your responsibilities as part of that? Yeah, so the pastoral council is an advisory body to the pastor, and we advise him on pastoral things. So what is it the community needs? Um, what kinds of ministries or programs might we do? Um, how are things working? How can we uh, fulfill our mission? So uh, we believe that our church has a mission to the community and to one another, how can we best fulfill that? Um, so I'm actually terming off. So this is my last month oh, on wow. the Parish we Pastoral Council. Right yeah, I've been on the PPC for six years, and so I'm terming off mm-hmm. uh, this month. 
but um, but it's been a really uh, wonderful opportunity just to see the the parish at that level and engage engage with people that I wouldn't normally be able to like or that I normally wouldn't naturally engage with. So a lot of elders, um, people who are doing very different kinds of ministry from the kinds of things I was doing, like mm-hmm. social justice and young adult ministry. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like it is an intergenerational effort. Then. Absolutely. Um, are are there particular roles then that you see in for young adults in terms of leadership coming up through, through the church? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, our council has been intentional to be intergenerational and oftentimes young adults are very forward thinking as young adults in society tend to be. So thinking about how we tithe, can we do this online? Um, We revamped our website that was uh, pushed by a lot of young adults uh, to help better communicate what we do as a parish. Um, Streamlining some of our administrative processes, uh, that's also been a role of young adults. And then also um, reshaping our thinking about how we engage with, with the larger community. You know, at St. Augustine, because of our role, we've made a lot of friends. And then there are some other people who find us to be rabble rousers or troublemakers. <laughs> um, and sometimes our elders carry that legacy with them mm-hmm. and uh, might discount the potential of certain relationships. But younger people don't necessarily have that legacy. And um, we've been able to push the envelope on some of those things. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about some of the material aspects of of organizing and community work and so forth. And I'm I'm curious how on a spiritual level for you, you know, how how do you approach your community organizing work? You've been a a, a faith-based organizer in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um obviously you're, you know, you you're in your um in your day job and 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 your various projects, you're you know, really committed to community engagement and uplifting people and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, what, what the, what's the intersection there for you with your spiritual life as well? So my spiritual life is um, really critical to that. I, I pray every day. Um, sometimes I pray longer than others, but I pray every day. And I find that really grounds me and keeps me focused on um, the things that are most important to me. It also helps me focus on what I believe is purpose for my life that God has given me. Um, And one of the beautiful things about my church community is that our liturgy and our pastor and our leaders are always reminding us that we have purpose, um, that our lives have purpose, that we have mission. And um, the more anchored we are to that, the better we'll feel, the the better we'll be able to engage with one another, and um, the better we'll make the world around us. Mm. So... Prayer for me is very important to that and um, and also sharing with other people who are striving uh, out of that value set is 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 really critical to me. I think it's a blessing to spend most of my time with people who are trying to make their communities a better place and trying to make themselves better um, and that encourages me to do the same. Beautiful. And somehow on top of all of these things, you have time to also sing in a fabulous <laughs> acapella group called Songrise, yes. which some of our listeners might be familiar with. So tell us a little bit about, about that. And, and is music, do you find that to be a release for you from the work that you do? or do, I mean, the themes and, and subject matter that Songrise actually sings about ties into a lot of the work that you're doing anyway. So is it more of a compliment? 
Yeah. Um, so, so for those who don't know, Songrise is a women's social justice acapella group here in D.C. And if you are with a social justice organization, uh, we will perform at your event for free as long as we have enough people available. So check us out online. Um, Songrise D.C. There you go. And uh, yeah, so sometimes it's a release. You know, we sing, we we cover a lot of songs that come out of different movement spaces. And um, the beauty of those songs is that they are full of the passion and the hurt, but also the hope and the vision of um, people who are leading those movements and leading present movements. And so in that in that respect, it's a release. It's also a, a reminder to me that I'm not in this work alone. And so there are people who've been doing this for years and years and years, decades and hundreds of years. And so I'm inheriting a legacy of, of people striving um, for for this work. And honestly, it's it's fun. I mean, for me, music, I think, is is healing, not only for the person singing, but for people listening. Our tagline is to inspire action through song. Um, and it's inspirational for me to sing, and hopefully it's inspirational to other people to hear it. Wonderful. Well, we're going to have a chance to listen to a little bit of Songrise in a moment. Dear listeners, you're tuned in to Interfaith-ish on Tacoma Radio. We've been talking with one of Songrise's singers, Janae Isler, who is also a member of St. Augustine Catholic Parish in Washington, D.C. Back in a minute. We will not bow down to our racism. We will not bow down to injustice. We will not bow down exploitation. I'm lost. Again, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on Tacoma Radio. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and my second guest this morning is Naz Khan, who's fresh off of a plane from Cairo, <laughs> Egypt. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm happy this is a morning show and not an evening show, because <laughs> right. otherwise I'd be half asleep. Right. Jet lag has, has <clears throat> been hitting Naz pretty hard. We got to hang out a little bit yesterday and uh, had to retire. <laughs> she had to retire a little bit early. Um, but I'm glad that you were able to make it on this side of the clock. Yeah, so you. um, your your most recent sojourn was, was over in Egypt, but that's only been the last couple of years. So tell us a little bit about where your family's from and, and where did you grow up? Okay, so I was born in India, as were my parents, and I spent most of my childhood from 0 to 12 in Saudi Arabia and then moved to the U.S., you know, around 12, 13, first to Alabama and then um, over to California. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of childhood. And I, I was born and raised in a Muslim family. Um, and I was always taught, okay, to, to be Muslim means to submit to God. And there's many ways to do that. So um, there's members of my family who went to Catholic school. And my grandfather would go to the Gurudwara. I think you know this story mm -hmm. as well. 
Um, and, you know, we had different scriptures in our house growing up. So there was the Padma Gita or the Bible, definitely all, all kinds of versions of the Quran. Um, so at, at, at least in India, in my, in my family's homes in India, that was, there was a lot of exposure, I think, to different faith traditions, but particularly the Hindu and the Christian traditions in, in addition to our own home religion, which was Islam. Since we are currently, we're coming up on the end of Ramadan, the month of fasting in uh, Islam. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, particularly when you were in Saudi Arabia. What, what was Ramadan like being in that environment for you? I mean, I was a kid. So for me, I think I, I really saw things from a very social lens. You mm -hmm. know, Ramadan was about in, in some ways, staying up and, and a lot of social gatherings. Um, I remember sometimes people would get like a big, you know, 50, 70 person tent and we would put it out by the beach. And I, I, I grew up on the coast. Wow. Um, most people don't think mm -hmm. about the coast when they yeah. think about yeah. Saudi Arabia. Right. So, you know, and we'd have these like beach parties. Uh -huh. um, and it was a spiritual time for sure, but as a as a kid, I think I was more in tune with the kind of um, more upbeat, festive aspect of it. Um, the mosque itself was wasn't actually a big part of my life in in terms of childhood. Religion and spiritual practice was something more that was um, amongst homes. Um, I mean, we would go to the mosque maybe for like the special holidays for Eid. Um, but yeah, and in Ramadan, it was, it was just kind of a normal uh, thing for me. It, I, I don't think I kind of thought of it as something different because everyone in the country was celebrating it. My right. dad would have half the day off. Mm. So he would get off work early. Sometimes school would end a little bit early, but everyone kind of just knew what was going on and, we would celebrate in school and yeah. Um, yeah. So then now as an adult being in Cairo, um, are there particular cultural activities and, and ways of celebrating Ramadan that you experienced there in Egypt? Yeah, um, I mean, Cairo is also known for, for being quite a festive place during Ramadan. Um, the streets often have like big tents, like colorful tents set up to feed people um, during iftar time, which is, you know, sunset. Um, around and the iftar month, is the, is the, the fast-breaking. The fast-breaking, mm -hmm. yeah, it's sunset. Um, and, you know, during um, Ramadan, there's also the, the mosques sometimes open up the areas around. And it, there's music, there's, you know, sometimes there's dancing. There's mm -hmm. like the um, traditional Sufi dance, for example, mm -hmm. that, you know, sometimes will happen outside. and. Um, I think, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, there definitely wasn't, you know, the music and dancing as part of Ramadan as okay. much. Okay. Um, and so when I first went to Cairo, the first time I think I was there was 2001. Mm -hmm. And so that was just a beautiful experience for me to have, to see this very, like, um, lit up, colorful version of Ramadan. There's like... You know, the kids make lanterns and they and they hang them out on the street. Mm -hmm. And so it's very colorful kind of time and there's I forget the Arabic name but there's someone who goes to the neighborhoods every um, night and they have a special instrument and they play music and they call out the the names of the kids of that neighborhood mm. um, so the first two days of Ramadan you know 
this guy's walking down the road and he has his music and this musical instrument and he's singing. And then you see these kids just yelling out the balcony being like, Muhammad, Abdurrahman, you know, Sara, Jamila or whatever. <laughs> and, and then it's so that the guy can hear the names. And then for the rest of Ramadan, he comes at night and he, he sings for them. So wow. it's more helpful for them to wake up and it just makes things a little bit more exciting. I right, guess, for... right. Oh, that's such a beautiful tradition. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I imagine a lot of people thinking about Ramadan, you're fasting for the whole day mm-hmm. and you're probably not in a, in a, in a festive mood towards the end of the day. Your, your energy is probably pretty low, but it sounds like it's kind of, it's the opposite of what you might think where people are kind of tired and, 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 and uh, just quiet about it, that actually they're coming alive at night and, and yeah. it seems like the whole neighborhood is, is coming alive as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember calling my parents one time, it must have been like two or three in the morning and I was like on one of the bridges and you know, there's kids around me and there's like a ruckus and my parents were like, what are you doing at three in the morning on the road? And I was like, I'm going grocery shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents were just totally confused. But I had to explain, you know, Cairo comes alive at night, yeah. you know, and um, there's there's three-year-olds out in the street at two in the morning, and it's, it's totally great. Beautiful. So, yeah. So you also, uh, during your time in Egypt, have had some opportunities to interact with some of the minority religious communities there. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about about the um, involvement that you've had with them and, and uh, what it's like to for, for these different religious minorities in Egypt? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think the two communities that I probably interacted with the most were the Baha'i community um, and a little bit of the Jewish community. So when I uh, one of the things I was doing in Cairo was I was um, part of a refugee studies program there a while ago, and um, I was really interested in the intersectionality of religious identity and migration. Um, so I was really blessed to be able to connect with um, you know the the few remaining members of the Jewish community, including um, this woman Magda Harun, who I think is now part of the or head of the Jewish community of mm-hmm. Cairo. And one thing that really struck me when I interviewed her one time um, was this idea that the, you know, the Jewish community is really connected all the way up to pharaonic times. And, you know, sometimes we think about, you know, that that time as being very ancient and and kind of of another era and chapter. But Mm -hmm. um, what's incredible about the Egyptian Jewish community specifically is, you know, Egypt was the core of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this was Moses' home, and this is really the, the, the heart, I believe, of a huge part of Judaism and Christianity. Um, and one thing that really struck me with this interview that I had with her is she, she said to me, you know, the pharaohs were such a huge part of Egyptian culture and history, and they were the epitome of what it meant to be Egyptian, and they thought they would never die out. And the, the Hebrews believed the same, that they're such a core part of what it means to be Egyptian. And yet here I am, and I'm, I'm the last one. Mm. And, you know, there was just something about that statement and, and hearing it from someone who was a descendant of, right. you know, and she's not speaking rhetorically because the Egyptian com- Jewish community is is less than 
10 or something. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a literal handful of people at yeah. this point. Yeah, and I think there's some um, reconnecting to the faith tradition with some of the younger generation. You know, there's ebbs and flows. I think the first time that I celebrated Passover was in Egypt well. um, through an Egyptian friend of mine. So that was kind of my first exposure to, to um, the story of Moses in that context. And, you know, we went to one of the synagogues there, uh, the Adli Synagogue. And um, it's a really unique synagogue because it's, it's built, it's designed to reflect the Egyptian history of um, uh, Judaism. So it has Pharaonic elements to it, but it mm. also has Judaic elements to it. So it's a very unique synagogue. And that was where I went for the first Passover that I celebrated. And, you know, there were teenagers who were there on their phones. and They didn't want to be there. And, <laughs> you know, and so it's 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 a realization that, you know, communities everywhere are kind of the same. You have people who are super into it. Right. And, you know, you got the folks who just want to hang out with their friends. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, I feel really blessed for having those doors open to me. And one of the pivotals that some of us may be familiar with from the Old Testament is of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And you actually recently went to Mount Sinai, yes. visited there. So tell us about, about that trip and that experience, because I'm sure people, you know, would even when if they've read the story before, can't imagine that this is a place that you can actually go to yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, Sinai is a, a very powerful place. Um, and... Mount Sinai in particular, so in Arabic people call it Jabal Musa, like the Mount of Musa. Um, Moses. The Moses, yes. <laughs> so it's in the town of St. Catharines, um, which is uh, kind of taken care of by the Jabalaya um, Bedouin tribe, and they trace their roots back to a mix of um, Arabs from Arabia and Egyptians from you know, Egyptian mainland as well as uh, Greeks. So it's the Greek Orthodox Church that really kind of takes care of the monastery um, right at the base of Mount Moses. Um, and the Bedouin tribes practice Islam. And it's, it's really interesting because this uh, particular monastery um, is also very explicitly protected by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. There's like a um, treaty that was created to, to give special protection to this area. Mm. And so um, the people that I came across with also very much prided themselves on the fact that there's this really strong interfaith tradition of protection and love and care for being able to guide the pilgrims through this space. Um, and those pilgrims could be from any faith tradition. And in fact, I think there, there was someone who told me that if a Muslim couldn't make it to Mecca for pilgrimage, that um, going to uh, Mount Musa um, seven times, I think, if you did that, it would be the equivalent of going on um, a hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca. So there's oh. a very strong connection between the Muslim community um, in Sinai and and the community that's taking care of the, the Greek Orthodox monastery. Beautiful. Beautiful. So we've been talking with Naz Khan, who's fresh off a plane from Egypt and bringing some of that mystic energy from <laughs> Sinai back to us here in D.C. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM, streaming online on TacomaRadio.org, and we'll be right back after a quick break. Thank you. 
That was the gorgeous sounds and voices of Songrise featuring our guest for today, one of our guests, Janae Isler. If you're just tuning in to us, this is WOWD 94.3 FM Tacoma Radio. As a non-commercial radio station, WOWD relies on your support to pay for rent, equipment, engineering, audio production training, and other operational costs. You can donate your support to us securely online at TacomaRadio.org. If you prefer to donate to us by check, you can please make out your checks payable to Historic Tacoma and write radio in the memo and mail it to 7328 Carroll Avenue, Tacoma Park, Maryland, 20912. Thank you very much for all your generous and very necessary financial support. This is Interfaith-ish, and I am your host, Jack Gordon. Every other week, we are coming together for bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. If you've been with us so far, you know that I've already had a little one-on-one interview with each of our guests, uh, but, you know, it'd be kind of rude to not give them a chance to talk to each other. Don't you agree? So for the second half of our show, as we do every episode, we'll be turning our mics over to our guests to give them the floor to ask anything that they want to follow up on about each other's stories, about their traditions, their experiences, their beliefs. So with that, I'll turn it over to my two guests, Janae Isler and Naz Khan. Naz, do you have questions for me? <laughs> Well, first, I wanted to say, wow, the the song that we just heard, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and actually, the first question I wanted to ask was about that church service that you went to, that your neighbor invited you to. Mm-hmm. You said it was another long story. <laughs> I, I would love to hear what that service was like for you and what it transformed for you and why it shifted you from one place to another. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll make it as short as possible. Um, so uh, it's Catholic Campus Ministry. So it was church in a, I don't know, like in a house or a community center somewhere on uh, the campus of UNC Wilmington. And the priest um, who did the service was a retired priest named Father Al Dash, um, who I later found out actually converted to Catholicism from Judaism. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I went to church on September 11th. So not September 11th, 2001, but it's the anniversary of 9-11. And the scripture um, that day was about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And Father Al preached a sermon about forgiveness um, and how Jesus compels us as Christians to forgive even the deepest hurts uh, that we've incurred. And and he talked about 9-11 and he said, you know, many people in our country proclaim this to be a Christian nation or its origins to be a Christian nation. But when you look at uh, our response to this deep hurt that we've experienced, um, do you feel that we've forgiven in the way that Christ calls Christians to forgive? And then he sort of like dropped the mic and then we, and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, And so it was a very powerful sermon. And, um, and I went back the next week and he uh, was preaching a sermon about a friend of his who is not Catholic, um, who is gay, who had dedicated his life to, uh, working with uh, people suffering from HIV AIDS. And uh, he talked about just like the radical service and love that this person demonstrated with their, their life. And he said, um, you know, if this person does not believe as we believe and they are serving in this way. Like how much more are we called to do as Christians? And I was like, who is this dude? Mm-hmm. Um, so I started going to mass there and there were uh, four other people who are about my age. So like 
mid to late twenties, early thirties who were in the community for various reasons. And we formed a young adult group actually. And so we would hang out every week. We'd have dinner. Father Al would hang out with us and share more about Catholicism. And, um, and we took on leadership roles in that community and helped the students. And it was just a really beautiful, uh, place, um, where I made some dear friends, like all of those people are still my dear friends. And uh, Father Al has passed away. He died of cancer mm-hmm. a few years ago, but I'm also very grateful to him for helping to build that community. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Yes, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> so I am fascinated by your life and your travels. Um, I've also traveled a lot, but I haven't lived uh, in places for the period of time that you have in other countries. And your description of Cairo, um, I mean, Ramadan sounds awesome. I'm like, yeah, I want to fast all day so I can like, <laughs> have somebody sing my name or whatever. Um, but uh, particularly, I'm curious about your work with different uh, minority religious groups and your ability to to navigate all of these different religions. And what were um, the opportunities that you saw there? How were people interacting with each other? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we hear a lot about interfaith conflict, especially in that part of the world. Did you did you experience any of that? What did that look like in real life, everyday life? Um, I mean, I feel like my experiences in Cairo have different chapters. So there was one time where I was really involved with the refugee community there. And one of the largest refugee communities there is the Sudanese refugee community. Um, and Actually, there's a there's a church, St. Andrews, um, which has been a huge powerhouse for serving the refugee community of Cairo and, and Egypt generally. And so in terms of um, service and uh, collaborative service to, to really kind of be there for refugees of all kinds, Muslims or Christians, um, those are kind of the two big populations. Um, I think different religious communities are really able to come together and um, be united by this common mission and this realization that, you know, all the teachers of all faith traditions were refugees at at some point. Mm. Um, And Egypt especially, you know, has this history of being the place of refuge for Jesus and Mary. Um, And so there is this very strong tradition and um, understanding of the importance of really being uh, welcoming to the stranger. Right? It's mm-hmm. one of the phrases from the Bible. And so in terms of um, work, community work, I feel that a lot of people are really trying to come together and work together and, and see themselves united in that vision. Um, you know, that being said, there's this is also a very tricky time in yeah. Egyptian history. Um, you know, religion and politics has been intertwining in a way that's not comfortable for most people anywhere in the world. I think. And so, you know, religious identity and political identity can sometimes get mixed and, um, you know, just create a lot of challenges. And also, you know, Egypt is still coming out of this post, quote unquote, revolution. And um, there's just been a lot of questions about you know, religion, religious identity generally. So mm. I would say there's, there's what I noticed was more of a questioning between people who are religious and non-religious. Mm. Um, and I guess I, I feel that similar tug in the United States as well. I mean, even in India, I feel like it's, that's kind of more the lines along which people are struggling with. It's like, okay, are you religious or are you secular? Yeah. You know? Um, and people trying to figure out 
where they fall in the spectrum and how their personal identity within that spectrum can merge with people who might fall on the more extreme parts of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when I was there, there, were definite, there, was, there was a bombing at a church uh, when we were there, and it was devastating for everybody. And, um, you know, so there is this uh, intensity of a change in politics that's happening there. Um, so, but, you know, prayers are strong, and there's, there's the news, and then there's communities, and then there's, you know, churches and mosques who are, who are really doing the work, and, and people who consider each other family. Um, and our family, and um, they embrace all those different identities within that family, I would say. Yeah. Um, so question for you. Yeah. Um, I was curious to learn a little bit more about the, the music work that you do, mm -hmm. um, and especially the fact that you go to different social justice spaces. Um, and if you could just maybe share one of your most recent experiences with that, who you were working with, and what's the process to figure out how you engage with the particular issue that you're going to support? Yeah. Um, so Songrise was founded nine years ago. This is, yeah, nine years ago um, by two friends who went to college together and they ran into each other on the train and started singing. And they were like, we should start a group. Okay. And they did. Um, and shout out to Jack because Jack actually introduced me to Songrise. Um, oh, nice. So, um, so, it's we're not like an incorporated nonprofit or organization or anything. We're really just like a group of women who like to sing and want to help the community. And so the issues um, are wide ranging. Um, not everybody in the group is on the same page with every single issue, but we're broadly social justice. And um, if a group requests our presence, we ask uh, the members of the group. And if we have a critical mass of people who can go, then we do it. So people can opt out. And I think sometimes the choice of like what issues we support is demonstrated by like what individuals say yes to so like if something feels too controversial or the structure of it or the group is something that makes more people feel uncomfortable than not then uh, people will just say they aren't available to do it and then we we won't necessarily show up wow, um okay. and then sometimes there are things that are more like specifically controversial and so we'll have a discussion about it so um most recently uh, so, for example, like a recent discussion was about the Pride Parade that happened in D.C. So uh, we were invited to sing at Pride and we did sing at Pride. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the members mentioned that um, some other groups had protested Pride, not not because of Pride, but because of uh, the Pride Parade as it is in D.C. was not necessarily inclusive of like trans people or people of color. Um, and there are groups that were protesting that it wasn't as equitable as it seemed to be. Mm. Um, and so some of our members raised that and we had a conversation about, do we still want to be aligned with it? Um, several of our members identify as queer. So, um, so like being at pride in itself, wasn't as much of an issue as like the nuances of, of other groups in the city. And that's the beautiful thing about Songrise because, um, we have people from all over the city. Some folks live in the suburbs different racial groups, different faith groups, um, secular people. And uh, we each bring unique perspectives that help all of us grow. 
And sometimes that can be uncomfortable, Um, but uh, more often than not, it's a positive thing because uh, we're all um, sort of struggling together to have this respectful community with one another and uh, hopefully share those practices with the rest of the world. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to go to one. Yeah. So we're actually singing on Thursday, tomorrow. Wait, today's Wednesday. Yeah. Tomorrow night at District Vox, which is uh, being hosted by council member Grasso at the Wilson building. Um, so. And what's that about? Like, um, It's a celebration of arts and culture in, in the city, uh, but it has a, a social justice theme. So artists in the city who are also advancing uh, social causes. And so it's not just us. It's a whole bunch of people. And um, several members of the council will be there. The mayor might be there. Um, and I don't know if there's a cost. I don't think there is a cost, but yeah. Cool. So, I'm so excited. I'm tomorrow so glad night, I asked this question. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow night, 530 Wilson Building. Nice. Thank yep. you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it, I have a lot of I I have a lot of questions like about your life. Like I'm I'm curious about living in so many different places. India, Saudi Arabia, Alabama. What part of Alabama were you in? Um, it's a little town called Killen. Killen. It's about okay. an hour away from Huntsville. Okay, so northern Alabama. And then um, Cal- what part of California? Berkeley. Berkeley. Berkeley for high school and then San Diego College. So um, what was it like, I mean, especially as a kid living in so many different places? Like, are you an outgoing person? Did you make friends easily? <laughs> or was it, I mean, was it hard to transition? What was, what was that like? Um, it was easier than I think most people expect because I have a language advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in Saudi Arabia, but I went to an international American school. So, you know, I grew up with this accent. So when I actually, when I first moved to Alabama, um, I went to a Bible school and, um, you know, some people, someone approached me and they said, you talk like a Yankee. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's interesting because I think, um, moving kind of, forces you to ask questions or answer questions that you typically don't realize you have to answer. So even, you know, growing up in Saudi Arabia, I never thought about, for example, you know, Palestine and Israel. And then when I entered college, actually, that's when someone asked me, well, do you have an opinion on this topic? And I said, why would I have an opinion on this topic? Mm. I have nothing to do with those, that mm-hmm. area. And, and they said, well, you're Muslim. And so that's why you're supposed to have an opinion on this <laughs> topic. So I think just moving around, um, you know, there's different expectations that people have of you in regards to what you should know or have an opinion about. or um, And so it, I think changing spaces, even within the country, I think just kind of helps bring out different elements of myself and think about different um, issues or topics or emotions regarding certain issues cool beautiful beautiful thank you so much for being here uh, again if you're just uh, joining us we you, uh, you missed a wonderful conversation I hope you didn't just join us but <laughs> we've been talking with Janae Isler and Naz Khan two dear friends who um, are are meeting for the first time but I hope if inshallah Naz is uh, able to come back to DC we'll we'll be able to continue the friendship inshallah, uh, inshallah, <laughs> inshallah. so um, this has been a, uh, a great episode and I appreciate everybody for tuning in to interfaith ish on WOWD 94.3 FM I've been your host uh, Jack Gordon 
and this is a wrap on our episode i will be away for the next uh few episodes the next few weeks uh traveling during the summer but never fear my fellow interfaith astronauts miranda hovemeyer and sue katz miller will be at the controls as we explore the inner workings of intersectional interreligious often irreverent interlocution so thanks <laughs> to them in advance for their dedication this summer and as always thank you to jeff philosopher for hooking us up with our theme music and great tracks and of course thanks to you dear listeners for spending your hour with us let us know if there's interfaith ish that you wish to dish by writing us an email at interfaith ish at gmail.com that's i-n-t-e-r-f-a-i-t-h-i-s-h at gmail.com interfaith ish will be back in two weeks on wednesday june 27th at 9 a.m with our next live episode until then keep it locked to wowd 94.3 fm for great music and programs seven days a week streaming online at tacomaradio.org go there for a full program schedule up next at the 10 o'clock hour will be Borderlines with Bobby Hill on the People's Voice of Choice, Tacoma Radio, WOWD 94.3 FM.